You know, that uh, we may find ourselves in life doing certain things because we're simply not in control. And this may seem somewhat unconventional, unconventional, but I want to ask you, why are you here tonight? And the reason that I ask you that is because if you're just here beating in time, you have my leave to go home. <laughs> because it won't do you any good. And if you're here because you're hedging your bet just in case there's something to this Christianity thing, once again, you have my leave to go home. Uh, if you're here looking for something, you've come to the right place. If you've come here maybe looking for a better way, there's one that I'm going to tell you about tonight. But the thing that, that's on my heart tonight is I, I got to thinking, if you have your Bibles with you tonight and you want to turn there, I'm going to be taking some Scripture out of the book of First Kings in chapter 18. And I'm going to be preaching about a man who was unconventional. And, you know, I, I thought it was interesting because I've seen Sister Ida's, I assume it's Sister Ida's dictionary sitting back there. It's, a, it's an older, I looked at the copyright on it, it's 1981. My dad had a dictionary just like that. I got in trouble for bending the pages on it one time when I was a little bitty fella. I remember that very vividly because it was punctuated with uh, a little bit of pain on my end. And, uh, you know, I was sitting there and I was thinking about that and I thought, now I need to know what the meaning of the word conventional is. So I borrowed her dictionary, I'm sure she wouldn't mind, and I looked up the word conventional. And what it means is it means it has something to do with that which is normal or expected. And then a couple of days ago, I had a fellow teacher at Fort Gay Middle School, which is where I teach, tell me that I was a bit of a maverick. And I knew what I thought that meant. You know, of course, I'd watched the movie Top Gun, you know, so I thought that's Tom Cruise's character. I'm all right with that, you know. And I went to look that word up in Sister Ida's dictionary. And as God would have it, I go to looking and everything, and she's got a, a, a looks like a piece of tissue or something in there marking a page. And while I'm flipping through, I'm getting closer and closer to that tissue, and I think, what are the odds? And when I get to that tissue, right there is the word maverick. And I said, well, that, that's confirmation right there. And uh, I, I looked up the definition of, of maverick and it has two one of which said an unbranded cow or calf and I said well no I don't want that one and uh, the next one said a dissenter not a sinner a dissenter and what this is is somebody that doesn't necessarily do what everybody else is doing now if you are a blood-bought Christian I can assure you that you are a dissenter when it comes to what the world expects. You are a dissenter, a maverick of sorts of the, what the world would have you to do. But you see there's a problem when it comes to what's conventional. Because sometimes what's conventional doesn't work. And the reason that my colleague there at Fort Gay, he went on to elaborate why that he called me a maverick was he said, you don't do things like everybody else does. You don't come in and try to bully the kids. And I said, these kids can't be bullied. I'm not the scariest thing that they've ever seen. I'm not the most problematic thing that they've seen, but I've noticed that as time has gone by, and they proudly proclaimed on my first day that they had run off four teachers that year. And I was the fifth. 
And they hadn't made their minds up about me yet. And it was on my first day. And I said, well, what do those other four teachers do? They began to lay out a list like old Martin Luther when he laid out a list of uh, problems with the uh, old Catholic church. And I was listening to him and I said, so if I don't do those things, then we'll be good? And it was the funniest look amongst all these. And I mean, these are kids that should be 13 or 14. Some of them are 15 and 16. Looked amongst themselves. They're a real tight-knit group. It, it's interesting. And they didn't hardly know what to say, Brother Dwayne. They said, well, yeah, I, I guess so. Now, along the last 12 weeks that I've been with them, I've had to remind them, like, guys, have I done anything that I said I wouldn't do? I said, no. I said, well, you guys aren't holding up your end of the deal. Man, they'd get shamefaced. I'd tell them that, and I'd tell them, now, look, I'm here to teach you something. I told them, I said, I've got a job to do. I need your help. And some would get motivated. Some are nigh to unmotivatable. But even those, they'll come, Brother Dwayne, and they'll talk to me. They'll tell me about what they did over the weekend or ask my advice on things. And I can tell you that if I never teach them one whit about science, if I can get them pointed in a different direction than what many of them are headed, I'll consider that a win. I'll consider that high praise whether the state of West Virginia agrees or not. And the thing is, is when it comes to winning souls, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Above all else, you were called to be a soul winner. A soul winner. When's the last time? Think about it. Page back in your mind right now. When's the last time you want a soul? When's the last time that you related the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody and they said, you know what? Uh, over there is water. What's to hinder me from being baptized? Uh, or they say, you know what? Uh, you portrayed it to me in a way in which I never thought. And I want to get right. When's the last time? You see, because the reason I talk about that which is unconventional is that we're living in a day and a time when things are about as unconventional as they can get. But yet we, and I've never understood where this bunker mentality comes from. And what I mean is that uh, how often it is that a church house cannot have a single solitary lost soul in it. And we get up and we preach. We make our prayer requests. We say, pray for those that are lost. Pray for my brother, my sister, my nephew, my niece, whatever that it is, whatever the relationship is. But when's the last time we went to them? Because we live in a world and a day and a time now where they're not coming to the house of the Lord. And you know what the Bible says about the house of the Lord? It says judgment begins at the house of the Lord. If they're not coming here, we need to go to them. When was it that Jesus looked around and said, they know where to find me. They know where that I'm at. Let them come out and I'll heal them. I'll help them. I'll do these things for them. Or did rather He walk up to the foot of a tree? And look up in there and see this fellow who's a little short guy. And say, Zacchaeus, come on down. God has blessed your effort. And because that you've made just a little bit of effort, I'm going to go abide at your house today. We've got to be willing to put some legs on our prayers. We've got to be willing that if we want revival to maybe fast for it. If we want revival to break out, we might want to start praying for it. And not just pray once or twice or while we're here at the church house, but in the quiet times at our house and each and every day. Because I can tell you, if we don't start, things aren't going to change. 
Here in, in the book of Kings, we find a man by the name of Elijah who is faced with one of the most difficult tasks uh, that is ever laid out before him. And I can tell you, uh, uh, now he could have gone to the temple and preached. Uh, uh, he could have gone and uh, tried to relate the gospel to a crowd, but they weren't listening, Brother R.B. They had tuned him out. They were listening to everything but him. Stop me if this don't sound familiar today. And it says now, and he decided to go the unconventional route. And he said, all right, you gather all your guys, and I'll gather me and my army of one, and we'll gather on this mountain and gather all the people. And during this time, there was a great drought. Elijah was responsible for that. He had prayed and God had said had shut up the heavens, all because of the sin in the land. He was trying to get them to come to a point where they'd look and say, you know what? Without God, we can't make it. And so he gathers them together. And we're going to start reading at verse 22 in 1 Kings 18. It says, Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Now if that ain't the definition of being outnumbered, Brother Arby, I don't know what is. He tells him, he says, look, I'm the last man of God, the last prophet that's left here. I'm the only one that's escaped the sword of Jezebel and Ahab. I'm the only one that's left. I'm the only one that's standing in the gap. And Baal's got 450 guys here. He goes on and he said, let them therefore give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood. And put no fire under. Now I can tell you, being a science teacher, this is kind of the scientific method spelled out well before the age of enlightenment several hundred years later ever come about. He said, we're going to do an experiment. You guys are going to be uh, the one group. I'm going to be the other group. He said, we're going to basically do things exactly the same in an experiment. You want to control one single element of that experiment. And so Elijah said, here's what we'll do. Notice what he goes on and says. Verse 24 says, And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Now, I can imagine this. I've spoken to a few groups of people, and basically my mind conjures an image of after he says that, everybody going, Yeah, yeah all right. Yeah. Sure. That sounds fine. I doubt they were all one voice. Yeah, man, that, that's great. It wasn't like cheering at a football game or anything. It was just kind of, all right, sure. And so then things were set in motion. And it says now, and I'm not going to read the rest of it. I'll paraphrase it for you. It says that they did just exactly like that he said. And the prophets of Baal went first. And they did just like he said. They cut their bull in pieces and they set it upon the altar and it said that they began to cry to Baal, their God. They began to cut themselves and to wail and to holler. And now I can tell you, 450 people acting like that, that would get just about anybody's attention. I can tell you, I've got a couple of students that, man, when they walk in a room, the noise level goes up about 10 clicks every time they come in. 450 men hollering, cutting themselves and yelling, so much so 
that had Baal been a God and been alive, surely he would have heard. And says Elijah looked around. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to cry louder. Maybe he ducked out to go to the bathroom. And he'll be back in just a second. And they cried all the more loudly. And I believe that they cried until their voices left them. And nothing happened. It says then Elijah, he gets his and he cuts it up just like that they did. First he rebuilds the altar of the Lord. The altar of the Lord is just an earthen altar. It's nothing special. Who could build an altar worthy of God anyway? And so he built it back up. And then he cut it in pieces. And then he dug a trench around it. And it said that he had him take water and dump over the wood and the ox and dump it again seven times, Brother Dwayne, that he dumped it until that it filled the trench around it. Now remember, there's a drought. How precious is water during the drought? You ever heard of the more perfect sacrifice? He didn't just soak that wood down just to make it wet so it would be less likely to burn. He was offering a thing that was precious to those people and they dumped that water over that. And then, of course, maybe you're expecting me to say, and Elijah stood up and began to shout and holler and clap his hands and run the aisles and everything, you know, act like a modern-day Pentecostal preacher. But he didn't. Rather, he prayed a real simple prayer. Because he was calling upon the God that could answer by fire. He was calling upon the one who lit a match that set our sun ablaze. He's the one who said, let there be light. And Brother Dwayne, it didn't hesitate. There was light. He's the one that put it all in order. He prayed a very simple prayer. Let me read. We'll read it verse 30. It says, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put wood in order, cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood. It said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day, Thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Not with great eloquence. In correction, it was 12 times, not 7, with the water. And he said, so that they'll know. And I like what he said, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That way, there was no question as to who that he was talking to. Not for God's sake, but for the people's sake. 
And it says, verse 37, And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water. That was in the trench because He is the God that answers by fire. He doesn't answer to where that it can be laid off to anybody else. But rather He answers by fire and the fire of God. If we want it, we better start asking for it. If we want to see a change, we better start praying for it. If we want to see things begin to change in this county, in this town, in our own homes, let us appeal to the God that answers by fire. Because you'll notice what John the Baptist said of Jesus. He said, look, I'm baptizing you with water. He said, but there comes one after me who's prepared before me. He said, I'm not worthy to tie his shoe. He said, but he's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. How much of you have been praying for fire. How many of you have been asking and saying, God, put your fire in me that I may be bold and go out and compel them to come in? Because I can tell you, that which is conventional, it ain't working out so well. The lost souls ain't beating that door down. They're not doing that at my home church either. They're not coming out. They're not coming and finding us. They're not climbing any trees. They're not crawling through the crowd trying to reach the hem of a garment. But let me tell you something. Jesus had appointments. And He kept them. You know, a lot of people, the Pharisees, they would have had Jesus say, you know what, come back some other day than the Sabbath. I'll tell you one of the most abominable things I've ever read that the Pharisees did in the Bible was when it was that they brought a man before Jesus with a withered hand. And it just so happened it was the Sabbath day. And it said the Pharisees watched to see not whether or not He could heal Him on the Sabbath, but if He would heal Him on the Sabbath. That is abominable. They believed in Him, but they didn't want Him to do it because of the day of the week. And it said that Jesus looked on them with ire. He was angry with them. Not the kind of anger that we would have at somebody, but a righteous anger because they ignored the weightier things of the law which were judgment Mercy and faith. We live in a day and a time where the people think that they've got us Christians pegged. That we walk around and say, oh, I'm so much better than all of they are. How dare you peasants behave in this manner? Step up. Rather than us looking and saying, were it not for the blood of Christ, hell is just a heartbeat away. Do you think that anybody's going to come to heaven and look around and say, you know what, I finally gave enough money to UNICEF and I got a certificate that guaranteed my entrance. Do you honestly believe that somebody's going to stand there and that God's going to look at them and say, hey, Brother Arby Rice, now I know that you believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but where'd you land at on that millennial reign issue? Because depending on which side you're on, that determines whether or not you get in. And yet we argue about such things. We argue about <coughs> frivolous things. When there's people out there, I read a statistic one time that said that every four seconds somebody on the planet Earth dies. Every four seconds. How many times have we stood arguing with somebody who we should call brother? because we have a differing opinion on how the end times are going to take place. 
how many groups of four seconds have gone by that we've done that and lost souls have died and gone to hell. How often have we done that? My, my. How sad that it is that we can't run for tripping over each other. I can tell you that the day for division needs to come to an end. We are all united in Christ. We may have differing ideas about one thing or another in the Word of God, but if we believe that Jesus Christ would come down into this world, was born of a virgin, lived a life without sin, and became a perfect sacrifice, hung on that cross and bled, and died and was dead for three days and rose again on the third day, that's what a person needs to be saved. That's the fire that John the Baptist was talking about. That's the fire that we need right now here in Wayne County, here in West Virginia, and here in the good old U.S. of A. I can tell you this, though. Just like Elijah, I remember getting down in the dumps. See, after this, have you ever, do you know what comes next in Elijah's life after this? Time fails me to read it. <clears throat> Let me paraphrase it for you. Jezebel and Ahab say, you know what, we're going to get him. Because after that, this big revival breaks loose, he has the 450 prophets of Baal killed. And then the next thing we see is we see him hiding. Sitting under a juniper tree saying, God, just kill me. I can't take this anymore. Now this is the same Elijah that gets taken in a whirlwind, Brother Twain. You see those preachers in the pulpit proclaiming the gospel, but you don't see us at home with our heads in our hands. Worrying over the bills. You don't see us uh, toiling with the Word of God when our spouse uh, is so sick and we, there's nothing we can do to help them. And we've prayed and prayed and gotten angry with God because He won't heal them. And we've asked and sought. Uh, and we feel like that everything's been poured out. But don't worry. We serve the God that answers by fire. Does that mean they'll get better? Maybe not. Paul said, hey, I besought the Lord three times. Three times, he said, I asked. And he answered and he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. What he told him is he said, I'm not going to keep you from it. I'm going to keep you through it. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to spare you from the lion's den, but you're going to go in and I'm going to bring you out. You think about the testimony that Daniel had after the lion's den versus when he, before he went in. The king looked for every way that he could to get Daniel out of the lion's den. And then when he drew near to the door, the king suddenly found himself powerless to save Daniel whom he loved. He tried every way he could. Looked through the law. There was nothing that would save Daniel. And when he came near to the door, afraid to look in, maybe knocked on the door and said, Daniel, has your God whom you serve, has He been able to save you? And Daniel answers and said, Oh King, live forever. But my God sent His angel and He closed their mouth. And I'm still alive because of His will. Amen. 
the God who can shut the mouth of a lion. Does that sound real conventional to you? Let me ask you this. When Israel was arrayed in battle and the Philistines on one side and Israel on the other, it said now that Goliath strolled out on the battlefield. I met guys like this when I was in school. See them down there at the middle school all the time. These guys that are so much bigger than everybody else. A big head honcho and they come out and they start flapping them guns. Just like that Goliath did. Hey, hey, now, y'all serve Saul. We be Philistines. Hey, why don't you send your best down and we'll just duke her out. And if I win, you'll serve us. And if you win, we'll serve you. Why? Because Goliath was convinced, hey, they ain't a one of them that can take me down. And guess who else was convinced of it? The whole army of Israel... And what it took was not the conventional. You know, I know I can't help but notice in that instance. You remember what they said about Saul? Have you ever noticed how it is whenever somebody's tall, they give a real vivid description? Goliath, they actually give his uh, uh, height down to a span. Saul, it said, was head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel, so he's the biggest guy there. Why did he go out? Because he was a coward. He wasn't trusting in the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. And it says that as God would have it, David gets sent to the front line just as as a delivery boy. He's he's bringing a bag of hot dogs in, you know, if we put it in today's standards, bringing it to his brothers. And now I can't help it, but any time that I remember this or read this scripture, Eliab is my older brother David. Because David was like that by me anytime I'd show up and go to run in my mouth. Son, shut up. What? Get out of here. Eliab looked at him and said, Son, go back to the house. You're just here to see a big racket. And as God would have it, Goliath strolls out onto the field. He says, I defy the armies of Israel. You servants of Saul. And I can see David as this brash youth. But he was a youth that trusted in the Lord. Because his daddy, who was supposed to be the one protecting him, stuck him out on the hillside, a garden sheep, because he really didn't care what happened to him. And there's a lot of evidence to back that up. That he might have had David to his dishonor, but God raised him to Jesse's honor. And it was that David was out on the hillside, and when a bear came, it was God that delivered him. It wasn't Jesse. It wasn't Saul or Eliab or any of the others. And when they were called and Jesse was told to call his sons, he didn't even bother with David. I don't believe it was just because David was young. I believe it was because ultimately he didn't care. Because these other sons were more important. But he sent David to deliver. They got a little more of a delivery than what they planned for, didn't they? And it said that David finally looked and he said, Who does he think he is? This uncircumcised heathen Philistine defying the armies of the living God? And he tries to rally him. Let's go down there. Let's cut his head off. Let's show him what our God can do. And I'll hush, boy. But word got back to Saul. And Saul said, well, you know, I don't really have a whole lot to lose here. I mean, if he... If he goes out and gets killed, I mean, he's just a little guy. You know, if, if he perchance wins, which is unlikely, okay. And he tries to hang his armor on him. The world will do that to you. 
They'll try to put you in the convention. You see, Saul said, here's the way everybody else fights, honey. Now let me put this armor on you, button it up, put this sword on your side. And David was about yay high, and the armor was too heavy. It didn't fit, and all it would do is cumber him down. How many times have you ever tried to arm yourself with the things of the world and you got your hind end kicked by the devil? I've been there. <laughs> I've gotten a knife fight with the devil in a phone booth and got cut to ribbons, but the Lord was there to mend my wounds. <laughs> uh, that I tell you that what David did was he said, you know what, this won't work. I know that this won't work. And Saul told him, he said, son, you can't win. David said, I know I can't win. What I like is what I heard another minister say one time when he said that everybody looked at Goliath on Israel's side and they said he's just too big. And David looked around and said, too big to miss. Too big to miss. And so it says now that David went down and he told Saul, he said, look, he said, I've never used that kind of stuff. David said, I'm going to fight from where I know I'm strong. And he said, I'm going to trust in God. And when he goes out there and he strolls out onto the battlefield, not boldly in himself, Brother Dwayne, because he wasn't nothing but boldly in the Lord. The next time that you're afraid to witness to somebody, remember how that David might have felt if he hadn't trusted in God. And it says that Goliath looks around. I believe he gives that big hearty laugh. You know, Often my image of Goliath, I grew up watching them Popeye cartoons. I believe he looked kind of like Bluto from Popeye. You know, that big scraggly beard and everything. And he, ha, 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 ha. Look at it. Am I a dog? Did you come out with a staff? David come out with his shepherd's staff. No armor. No armor that a man could see. And he strolls out onto the battlefield. He's got a sack full of stones. Now you know many men far more educated than I am in the Word of God have speculated on why it was that David chose five smooth stones. They've said that it was because of Goliath's brothers. I've heard a multitude of theories. My thinking... Is more along that the lines of Jensen Franklin. He said, I believe David said, well, it probably won't take no more than five. And he scooped up five. He didn't know how many it was going to take, but he knew God was going to do it. Amen. And it said that David told Goliath something before the fight. And it was within the hearing of both sides. Goliath had shouted and bellowed and laughed at him and said, I, I'll feed you to the crows. David said, you've come against me with sword and spear. David said, but I've come against you in the name of the living God. And this day, you'll fall to me so that they'll know, the guys behind me, that there is a God in Israel. And it said that after that, the talking was done. David hastened to him and slung that stone and said that when he turned it loose, in my mind, sees God's hand slapping it. Putting his full weight behind it and it hit Goliath in the one place that he didn't figure anybody would be able to hit him. Right smack in the forehead. And that giant fell that day and it said that David took his head with his own sword. And you're afraid to testify? To sing in church? To witness to your co-worker? Tell that to David. Or perhaps the next time that you're afraid to witness or to testify to somebody, remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Because what I see is I see his most human moment. I see a man like I was one night in a moment in which that, and Mom knows all about this and some of you others do, a man who had his own little girl right in his hands. Brother Dwayne, there wasn't a thing I could do to save her. She was dying. And every penny that I could spend wouldn't, wouldn't save her. I'm a pretty smart guy, but I didn't know enough to save her. Held her right there in my hands, listened to her heartbeat as it was a tripping over itself, knowing that that little heart couldn't take much more of that. And there she was in my hands about to die. And I remember in that moment I prayed the most earnest prayer that I had ever prayed in my life. And I bowed my head before the God that answers by fire, Brother Dwayne. And I said, Lord, she's in your hands. Yeah. You know, as a parent, we feel like if we're just right there with them, we can protect them. And we can keep bad things from happening to them. I've had to realize I can't. God protects them whether I'm next to them or whether I'm not. There she was in my hands, and I knew that if God didn't intervene, He'd leave this world. And you know the prayer that you would want to pray in that instance. God, don't let her die. Save her life. Lord, don't take my baby from me. I can't bear this. And while I was a holder there in my hands, I said, that's not good enough. In a moment of wisdom that is far uncharacteristic of me, I said, Father, if she would grow up and die lost, take her now. If this world would beat you out of her, take her home. But God, such as I am, if, if you'll grant it, give her to me, and I'll give her back to you. And I'm proud and happy to say that he gave her back. It could have went either way. She gave her heart to the Lord a couple years ago. Now, does that mean she's had a perfect run? As her pastor and her father, I can tell you no. Have you? I ain't. People can look and they can find all kinds of evidence to make a case against you. Satan's building a case against you presently. But when it stacks up against the blood of Christ, it does not matter. When you pray, the next time that you pray for a lost soul, try to pray like I did for my daughter in that instance. I heard a story one time that really worked on my heart and really changed my prayer life. Which it said there was a man that come upon a wreck and there was already people on the scene. This man was an EMT trained in uh, uh, you know, emergency uh, medicine. And it said that he seen that somebody was hurt and he began to get out of their way and said, uh, somebody help this person. And cried out to the people around him. And several were just standing there looking and they didn't know what to do. And the man got over there, you know, and uh, he couldn't see his face, but he got to the body and began to check it out and said, uh, somebody get some help. And it was very mechanical and clinical. But then he seen his face. And it was his own brother. And his pleas for help changed. 
Suddenly this was somebody that he cared about. Suddenly this was a plea, an earnest plea, and that's how we must pray for that lost soul as though it's our own child. As though it's our own brother, our own sister. When we ask for the fire from heaven, let us ask in faith believing that God is the God who answers by fire. Because those willy-nilly token prayers are not going to cut it. Ask yourself again. Remember what I asked you at the beginning of this service. Why are you here? Are you here for fire? Did you bring it? I've had lots of interesting conversations with people where they look and they say, well, you know, I found thus and such wrong with this or that church. You know, telling me, uh, ultimately wanting to come to my church, and I told them, I said, have you tried to fix it? Well, no. And I said, well, before you leave, why don't you see if you can do something about it? Maybe you see a problem in this church. Why don't before that you get puffed up and angry, because things ain't going your way, why don't you beseech the Lord and say, what can I do to help? Because I can tell you that anybody can complain. But it takes a willingness to move and to work. Put legs on your prayers. Imagine if you prayed and said, God save so and so's soul. And the Holy Spirit said, why don't you go talk to him right now? Would you be like, well, Lord, it's 9 o'clock at night. Uh, i got to work tomorrow. Uh... I, I just, Lord, I ain't got, can you send somebody else? No, he asked you. Maybe he's never done that. Why do you think that is? I can tell you that as an employer, you know the guys that I always called first? <coughs> the ones that I count on to go. The ones that would say, yes, we can do this. Yes, we can go. What about you? Does he call on you? Because I can tell you that sometimes the reason there's no fire is because you haven't made preparation. (laughs) Elijah, he could have just said, well, God, just send a pillar of fire down here. But rather, he said, I'll show you. That world out there, yeah, we've all got complaints about it. If if you don't believe me, just go hang out at a barber shop. You'll get to hear about all the problems of the world. I told a group of men one time, I said... I said, ultimately, as I see it, and I see it this way even now, ultimately the biggest problem that we have in this nation is a lack of reverence and trust in Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. You don't have to go very far outside the Bible Belt to find people engaged in things that you would not believe. It's, it's astonishing. Go spend some time on the campus down there at Marshall. Go try to witness to people down there on campus at Marshall. The Christians almost have an underground movement going on there to the point to where they operate incognito anymore. Why? Because you get persecuted for being a Christian. And you know who it is that persecutes them? I give you a hint. They wave a rainbow flag. The homosexual mafia. They'll come after you. I had a young man one time got grouped with him. And the first thing he said was, I just want you all to know that I'm gay. That was the first thing that he said. And this was after that I had said, I'm an evangelical Christian. Because you've got to put that evangelical thing on it. Otherwise, you know, he's like, oh, you're a Christian. 
No, I'm an evangelical Christian. I'm an actual Christian. Maybe to quote the youth of today, I'm a Christian Christian. You know, because they double things and that makes it more valid like you like like somebody. And this young man, he stared right at me when he said it. At least I think it was a young man. Anyway, and we, we began the discussion. I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. It's free country last time I checked. I'm free to be a Christian just like you're free to be what you are. And he kept, I mean, just every, every few minutes, and I could tell everybody in the group was just getting exasperated with him because it was all about gay, 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 young, 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 gay, gay, gay. And I finally said, all right, <clears throat> we get it. He said, what do you mean? And I said, we get it that you're gay. We get it. Do you, are you one-dimensional? Well, I don't know what you mean. And I said, that's all that you talk about. Is that the only identifier that you have? Because I told him, I said, I don't run around telling everybody I'm straight, 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 straight. I figure my wife and kids probably testifies to that enough that I don't need to say anything. Oh, man, he got upset. I was persecuting him. And I said, no, I'm not persecuting you. If I was persecuting you, I'd have knocked you flat of your back by now. And I told him, I said, and furthermore, being annoying knows no sexual orientation. And it doesn't. He was an annoying person, whether he'd have been gay or straight. But I told him, I said, son, I said, there's more to life than those sorts of things. And I said, I wouldn't persecute you. I said, I would to God to be able to look at you and call you a brother in Christ. And I told him, I said, I don't hate you. I said, no, I don't like sin. Oh, so you're calling my lifestyle sin? I said, no, my Bible calls it sin. He was real quick to jump on the Matthew 7-1 train, as many are nowadays. Matthew 7-1 says, judge not lest ye be judged. And I, I, I said, well, you know what it says after that? No. I, says, it says, I said, it says, with whatever measure that you meet out, it will be measured unto you also. And I said, what that means is that if I'm willing to judge based on the Word of God, I'm being willing to judge to be, be willing to be judged by the Word of God. And you know what the Word of God says about me and my sin? It says, if I believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I am not condemned and I am saved because of that. Amen. And I didn't do it in a belligerent tone. The Word of God is not a club. It's a sword. Now what became of that young man, I have no idea. Never saw him again after that class was over. I hope and pray that he finds the peace that only Jesus Christ can bring into a person's life. But let me tell you something. God gave me a boldness that was uncharacteristic in that time. I pray that God gives you a boldness out there because here's the real thing. Time is clicking down. There is less time left now than what there was yesterday and there'll be less time left tomorrow than what there is today. And a lot of people may say, well, I'll wait. <coughs> they may fall rather squarely on the millennial rain side where that it's taken quite literally. And I've had to tell a few people, my Bible says today. Today is the day of salvation. When you testify, when you witness, and you do anything for the Lord, do it like you're running out of time. You'll find that there's an earnestness. Get put on the earnestness that Job put on after that he got vomited out on shore by a whale. 
Suddenly that man was able to make a three-day journey in one day. That man was motivated. Motivate yourself. Ask God to motivate you. Because the conventional, it doesn't work. And God didn't call us to be conventional. And what I mean by that is that Jesus said to go out into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. Does that mean grab them by the hair of the head and drag them in screaming? No. Reason with them. Have you ever thought about how Jesus preached to those that were lost versus the Pharisees, the self-righteous? Let me give you a quick sampling and then I'm going to hush. That when Jesus encountered the Pharisees, and it's in the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew, and one of the things that he kept saying was, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! He told them, he said, that you tithe men and eyes and cumin, but you ignore the weightier things of the law, which are judgment, mercy, and faith. And he told him, he said, you are, you're not supposed to leave those other things undone, but don't forget about these weightier things. And another point, he said that you devour widows' homes and you laid burdens on men that are grievous to bear when you could take them off. And they were the self-righteous. And he said, not only will you not go in, but you'll trip the guy that is trying to go in. You stand in the way. And then Jesus was sitting by a well one day at midday. There's a woman comes out to fill her water pot. I believe it's John chapter 4 if I remember right. And she comes out in the middle of the day, not the time that's typical to draw. And it's because she's hated by her fellow villagers. And now Jesus could have looked at her and said, Hey there, adulterer. How's it going? See, you're out here when nobody else is out here. Been into some bad business, haven't you? You're a bad person. And you're not even worthy to be in my presence. But rather he says, give me a drink of water. Aren't you a Jew? I'm a Samaritan. We don't associate with each other. Jesus said, look, if you knew who I am, you'd ask of me a drink. And she begins to get philosophical on him. And then she tries to throw up the religion front and says, well, you know, uh, you Jews say that you know, the only place to worship is in the temple and we worship on this hill and everything. And Jesus tells her, look, there's coming a time when that God will be worshipped everywhere and especially in spirit and in truth. But what he told her about that day was not condemnation, but it was about mercy. What are the way to your things of the law? Judgment? Mercy and faith. Every time that Jesus encountered somebody who was obviously taken in sin, he preached to them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And anybody that was self-righteous that would come and say, you know, I, I do this and I give that and I'm better than these guys, he said, they weren't, they're not justified. You don't justify yourself. He justifies you. He's the God that answers by fire. What do you have to offer Him? Tonight, I want you to consider what you're going to do with tomorrow. Especially if you knew it was your last day. I want you to get up tomorrow with this in the front of your mind. When you're looking back at that person while you're brushing your teeth, looking in the mirror. I want you to consider what would I do if I knew that today was my last day. And then do that that day. You may say, Brother Jeremiah, what if I get out there and I witness to somebody and they reject it? That's okay. It happened to Paul too. Yeah. <laughs> they rode Paul out of town on a rail. Mm -hmm. 
They beat him with stones. You know what he did? He got up and went to the next town. He wasn't afraid to publish the Word of God. Don't be afraid. I mean, think about it. He's the God that answers by fire, isn't he? He's the one that has the very power over life and death. What can they do to you? Yeah, they may ridicule you. That's fine. Jesus said, Blessed are those which you are reviled for my name's sake. I mean, you should count it as a blessing. But you should suffer for his sake. I tell you tonight, we don't have the time to spare. We don't have the luxury of sitting back and saying, well, they'll come around. What if they don't? What if they're presently enjoying their moments? I want you to pray old-time conviction down on anybody that's lost. Soak them in prayer before you ever go and talk to them. Have you ever noticed that whenever you're getting ready to clean something, sometimes you'll spray it down let it soak for a while? Do that with your prayer. Soak somebody down and say, Lord, let their recliner fall apart. Let their cable go out and not come back. Let them look around and everything that's comfortable to them be taken away that they might finally, finally look and say, there is a God and He is real. And there is a God in heaven and I better get with the program because time is running out. I've got many family members who are waiting, looking for, and I've got one who thinks that He's going to slide in at the last second. That's his plan of salvation. I had to, that didn't lighten him one day. I told him, I said, son, I said, there's a scripture that covers that. And I'm not saying that somebody can't get saved at the last second. God forbid. I hope that's factual. But the scripture also says that the Lord will knock and you'll not answer. He said, there'll come a time when you'll knock and he won't answer. I tell you, if that doesn't send chills up a lost person's spine, I don't know what will. Not only that, but when do we know when the last moment is? When I was a senior in high school, I thought about writing my senior term paper on procrastination, putting everything off to the last minute. I thought that'd be perfect. I can do my research and then write my paper at the last minute. And I thought about that years later. I didn't actually write it on that, but I thought about it years later about how I prided myself on that. And that was my plan for salvation until that I realized, hey, I don't know when the last minute is. That's a bit of a problem when you're procrastinating, isn't it? When you procrastinate, you know when the last minute is. None of us knows when the last moment's coming. I had an uncle, have an uncle, upon whom God was merciful. And I believe that was his plan. He said he sat down on the bed that was the last thing he remembered for a couple of days. His heart stopped like that. He never saw it coming. There was no time to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, get me right. It was heart beating one second and stopped the next. Were it not for the mercy of God, he would have gone into eternity such as he was. And I can tell you this, if you're lost... If you're not ready, that heartbeat is the only thing that separates you from eternity. So everybody stand. Everybody get us on. We'll let Brother, Brother Dwayne give you the altar call.
they get a song ready if you're here tonight and you're lost and undone without you. If you uh, are afraid 